There we go. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Yeah, I know. I asked that question once, and you're like, why is he asking it again? I already gave my answer. Alrighty, so if you have not been with us, or you just need a little bit of a refresher, um, basically what we have done through the month of September is we have been going through the book of the minor prophet of Micah. You guys might not be too familiar with this minor prophet because, honestly, I wasn't all too familiar until I really started digging into this to teach this lesson. And so what I want to do is I want to give you guys just a little rundown of what Micah is and that way um, and things about him so we can all kind of be caught up. Sound good? All right. So, like I said, we're in the last week of our three-week series of the book of Micah. The book of Micah was written about 2,700 years ago during the time when the Israelite nation, the people of God, were split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. It's important to remember the reason, the big reason for this split was the Israelites continued to want to live, um, if you will, against God. And so Judah split in order to try to live for God. Naturally, they also still failed at that. It didn't go over like they had thought. They continue to still live for themselves. And so Micah comes into the picture now. And so during his lifetime, Micah brought prophecies to Judah during the reigns of three kings, only one of them, King Hezekiah, who we talked about last week, repented. So out of three people that Micah prophesied to, only one repented. The other two did not. They looked religious because they were giving lots of money to the temple. They were saying their prayers at the right time. They were following temple rules, but the reality was they weren't any closer to God than those that weren't doing those things. The prophets, the priests, and the governments, and the rulers were using their positions of power to manipulate the law to take advantage of the poor by taking their lands, their money, and their status. Micah was known as the poor man's prophet, as you saw in the title there. Micah was not known as the poor man's prophet because he was a poor person or because he was speaking necessarily to only the poor. Micah was known as the poor man's prophet because he was speaking on behalf of the poor people. We've seen throughout this this, uh, time in our book of Micah that The governments and the rulers, they were taking land from the poor, they were taking money from the poor for their own gain, and so Micah comes into the picture to basically defend them. That's why he's known as the poor people's prophet. Micah called out the wickedness of the leaders of his time. Micah's theology, if you will, seemed a little off. Um, It seemed a little off because, sorry, we'll get back to that one. Um, So I said he confronted the Judah, he confronted the kings of Judah. he did this thing, he, he preached this thing called deviant theology, deviant theology. What deviant theology simply is, is that the people of Judah had twisted what they knew about God and what they learned about God, and they twisted it to justify and rationalize their evil behavior. So basically, they took what they read in the word of God, essentially, or the words of God, the commands of God, and they twisted and distorted it to fit what they felt was right. They actually tried to use the words of God to take money and land from the poor. 
And you're probably like, man, that doesn't make sense. How can you do that? Well, to them, it made sense. To them, they felt like they were doing the Lord's work by doing that. And so Micah has to come in. He, he can't sit by any longer. He has to come and intervene. He has to do something about it. And actually, it seems like really Micah was the one teaching being the deviant theologian because he was teaching something so far against what the people and the kings of Judah actually were doing. He seemed like the outsider. And so we're going to jump into this where, like I said, we're at the end of the book of Micah. We're in chapter 6. This is going to be our final week in this series. And so what I want to do is I want to ask a question for you. And that is this. That is, how many of you like when things don't go your way? Okay, don't raise your hand. I know that's a lie. You guys, you guys hate it when things don't go your way. You want everything to go your way. You want the world to be exactly how you want it. And that is, that's not, I don't say that to be offensive, but like that's the reality. Every one of you in this room wants the world to revolve around you. That's, that's how we're, we're designed. That's our, what we call our sin nature, right? We want everything to be about us. And so I know for me, when I was really young, I wanted everything to go my way. See, me, my two, oh, my two siblings, and my four cousins, we lived growing up on a huge plot of land. So with all the families that lived on this land, it equaled about 40 acres of land, of woodland land, 40 acres. And my cousins lived about a two-minute walk down the road of this road that passed through all this acreage. And so we hung out all the time growing up. And so we would play your normal games. We'd play tag, we'd play hide and seek, we'd play flashlight tag, we'd play acorn wars, we'd play cops and robbers, we'd throw pine cones at each other, you know, all the fun stuff that kids do. And um, we played this one game. It was kind of like our own version of Manhunt, if you will, but it was completely not. We called it Manhunt, but we're like, we don't like these rules, so we're going to make our own. I remember at some point during one of these games that we played, my 13-year-old self got very upset because I got tagged, and I didn't think it was fair. I don't know how I justify that a hand touching me doesn't count as being tagged, but I, I did. I was like, no, 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 you touched like... You touched like the little piece of my shirt. That shouldn't count. No. I tried to justify it, and I got upset. And so as a 13-year-old, what do I do? Well, I start yelling, and then they yell back at me, and then I run at them, and they run at me, and I throw a punch at them, and they throw a punch at me, and naturally they're like three years older than me, and so I'm losing this battle, and I hate losing, right? And I stop, and I look down, and there's a brick. And I was like, and I wish I could say that there was a moment of hesitation in my mind, like just now on stage, to doubt picking up. No, I just picked it up and chucked it at him. I also wish I could say there was a moment of guilt afterwards. There also was not. The brick hit him straight on. They got hurt. They started crying. I was like, that's what you deserve. Um, you're being stupid. Not listening to me. Not letting me win. And so... <laughs> Naturally, they go and they tell on me, tattletales, I don't like them. I'm over here like, why'd you tell my mom? It was just a brick, calm down. And so they go and tell my mom. I remember I get home and mom knows already and I'm just like, she's like, Josh, why'd you throw this brick at this person? That's not right. And I said, no, no, mom, mom, you don't understand. And she's like, no, you're, 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 you're in trouble, grounded, boom. And I was like, my, to my 13-year-old self, I'm like in shock, like, why did I get in trouble for doing this? I was in the right. I was justified. So what was your reason? Well, he, he was being stupid. 
And she's like, you're still grounded. Get upstairs. And so then naturally, of course, me being the person I was, like, I knew I had done wrong. I tried to justify it so that didn't work. So my next move is like a plea deal of like, well, I'll, I'll do the dishes for a week. I'll, I'll wash all the cars. I'll take the dog out. I'll, I'll make my bed. I'll make sure my homework's done. But there still had to be a punishment for that. I was trying to make up by things that I could do. But I wasn't actually sorry about what was happening. And that's where we're at today in this story is in Micah chapter 6, we are in a, what it looks like to be almost like a courtroom scenario. And the Israelites are on trial against God. And God is asking them the question, why? Why are you doing these things? And they first, they're, they're always about trying to justify what they do. But now they're at this point where they're trying to plead to God, like, what can I do to make it better? But what we're going to find out today, what I want you to walk away with, is it's not about what we do in our relationship with God, it's about who we are. And so I want to read Micah chapter 6. It's going to be up on the screen for you, and, um, sorry, and it's going to be up on the screen for you in case you need it. And so we're going to start in chapter 6, verses 1, and we're going to go through verse 8. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountain, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have you done, or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up out of Egypt. Um, indeed, I brought you up out of of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or with ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. And now, so what we have here is, like I said, is we're, in a, we're, we're in a courtroom scenario with God, and God is basically calling to account all that he has done for them as a nation. In verse 4, God says that he brought them out of Egypt. Then he says that he redeemed them from slavery. And he says that he sent spiritual leaders like um, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God was showing them that he always wanted what was good for them, nothing else. He only wanted what was good for them. But yet that, for some reason, was not enough for the Israelites to feel like, I want to follow God with all of my heart. It still led them to want to spiral and to want to go and do things for themselves, by themselves. They wanted to be their own God. And it's funny because they get to this point where it's literally like God has called them in and he has clearly shown all the things that he's done. He's laid a track record before them. And then now they're like, oh, goodness, okay. Um, well, God, what, what, what can I do to make it better? Uh, God, can, can I bow before you? Can I pray a prayer? And God's like, no. Like, well, what if I, what if I bring... A thousand rams. Is that enough? And God's just like, no. How about 10,000 streams? 10,000 streams, God, come on, that's got to be enough. 10,000 streams of oil. And God says, no. 
and they even go as far as to say, can I give you my firstborn, the one of my body, for my sins and transgressions? And that's still, but they're missing the point. That's not what God wants. It's not about what we do in our relationship. In my story I just told, it's not about the doing to get back in right standing. It's about being. I need to be sorry. I need to be repentant. I need to feel bad. I need to feel that. And the Israelites are missing this point. They're thinking they can just go do what they want, come back and give 10,000 streams of oil, and then boom, they're done. But this is the main point I have for you today. I don't want you to miss this. And that is God's requirement for worship is not about the ritual. It's about the heart. I don't want you to miss that. So I want you to take out your phone, take out your pen, take out your paper, write it on your hand if you have to. Don't miss that. God's requirement for worship is not the ritual. It's about the heart. God's requirement for worship is not about doing something to be in right standing with God. It's about being something. It's not about the things you can offer. It's about the things that you already are through Jesus Christ. See, we just finished last month our series, Lost and Found, where we talked about the prodigal son, and I had capped off the final bit of the series with the older brother. Remember the older brother? How he was so busy working the labors of his field, he never once laid down his tools to go and find the younger brother. He thought that his obedience, he thought that his like, never dishonoring his father, that always working hard and making sure they had food, he thought that was enough to gain the love of the father. And that was his justification to it, is I never received a goat or a ram because even though I did all of these things. And also in church, um, the main service, you know, Aaron just teached a couple weeks ago this really, really great message. And I, I pray that you were listening because that is something you guys need to hear. It's something I need to hear every day. In that, he talked about the story of being grown up in, in, a, in a legalistic church in somewhere that uh, teaches things like guys can't have facial hair and women can't wear pants. And he used this term called legalism. Legalism is really essentially this idea that you can work towards something. Like it's something that it's not true, but you can work towards. Legalistic people believe you can work towards the good graces of God. They believe you can, the more you do, the more quote unquote saved you are. See, that's where the Israelites are today, is they're, they're, they're only thought of trying to be repentant is to offer God all these things. Can I bow before you? Can I pray a right prayer? Can I bring a thousand rams? Can I bring 10,000 streams of oil? Which is an unmatched number of expense. Oil was so prized in that time and to offer 10,000 streams of it? Can you imagine how much they're trying to buy their forgiveness with God? It's all about, that's what you're told. Many of you in this room may have been raised in that mindset or you've heard that mindset about, it's about doing. What can I do? Can I pray the prayer? Can I go to church every Sunday? What things are you trying to do to earn forgiveness with God today? And this leads me to this point of this idea Salvation is not about what we do. Because the reality is we can't do anything. There's this apostle 
this disciple named Paul. If you're not familiar with Paul, it's okay. I'm going to say it real fast. If you're not familiar with who the apostle Paul is, Paul was a horrible guy. He literally would persecute. He would literally try to imprison and kill people like you. He went around imprisoning Christians for believing the gospel and believing Jesus like rose from the dead. And then one day he met God on the side of the road by a blinding light and his life was forever changed. Paul would go on to be what we know as the greatest missionary in the world. He would plant churches all over the world in that, area, in that region. He would actually write a majority of the New Testament that you read today. That's Paul. So this, there's his track record. There's his qualification to say this. Ready? Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Last I checked, dead people can't do anything for themselves. When you're dead, you're dead. You need something on the outside of you to raise you back to life. That is what Jesus did. It's called what we call the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, let me share it with you. God loved you so much that he sent his son. He got his son to come from heaven, perfect heaven, to live a life that you could never live on earth. A perfect life, a sinless life. He would die the death you deserved on a horrible cross. And then three days later, he would rise from the dead and he would defeat sin and death and offering you a chance of salvation. The gospel, salvation, Christianity, it's not about what you can do, it's about what Jesus has already done. That's the beauty of salvation, that you can't offer anything. Even if you actually could conjure up the money to buy 10,000 streams of oil, it's not enough because it's already done. Salvation's already given through Jesus Christ on the cross. Every sin that you ever committed, that you currently are in the middle of committing, that you will ever commit, is already forgiven by Jesus' blood on the cross. Don't miss that. Don't think that your religion, that your relationship with God is contingent, that it's hinged on what you can offer to God. It's about what Jesus already did for you on the cross. Don't miss that. Don't keep living this lie that if you pray the right prayer, if you have your honor roll at church every Sunday morning, if you read all your Bible verses and all this, that you're going to be a better Christian. That's not how it works. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you can offer. It's about just being a child of God accepting what Jesus already did for you and being willing to say that's enough to be in right standing with God. What things are you today trying to offer God? Maybe you're not trying to offer God a thousand rams or 10,000 streams of oil Maybe today you're sitting here and you're, you're on this courtroom scenario with God and you're saying, but God, look, here's, here's my Bible in a year program completely checked off. God, here's my church attendance. It's full. God, I took my Awana booklet and I memorized every single verse. Look, there's a teacher's signature by every single one I did. it. What are you here today trying to offer God for forgiveness? What is it? We all have something. We all have something we're trying to give God to get in right standing with him. What is it? I know there's a lot of people out there and you're just like, oh my gosh. But I want you to think about that. 
Because this story that we're reading today is not so far removed from us that we can't learn that there's things in our life today that we are trying to offer God to get in right standing with him. When all God is asking us to do is just to come, bring your dirt, bring your shame, and give it to Jesus because that's what he wants. I love this passage because God does a classic move. He doesn't leave us wondering after he gives us a command. He makes sure that there is a way to do what he is asking of us. Isn't that great? Don't you just hate when somebody tells you to do something and then there's like, I have fun, see you later, bye. It's like, wait, what? I don't know about you. No, um, there's a show. I won't name it. There you go. There's a show I was watching the other day and uh, the boss walks out to the employee. He's just like, hey, I need you to get me a rundown of all your employees, all your clients. I said, yep, got it. I'm going to get you that rundown. It's like 30 minutes later, he rolls in the office. So um, this rundown, did you, uh, did you, how'd you want it to look? Just give me a, a rundown. It's like, okay. He comes back, and he goes to the computer, he's typing, you work on the rundown? I said, yeah, 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 work on rundown. Spending lots of time. He said, you're spending lots of time on a rundown? And this guy is just like, what the heck is a rundown? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the boss never tells him. But that's not what God does for us. When he gives us a command, he tells us how to do it also. And that's what he does in this passage. In this passage, he gives us a command, and he says that what you're supposed to do, we see in the next verse, in verse 8, it's not that God, um, God doesn't do that to the Israelites, and he doesn't do us today. In verse 8, it says that God requires of them to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things, that's it. I want to break these down real fast as we're closing here. Please stay with me because this is, this is the point. This is it. It's not about what you do. It's about the things that you get to be. The word justly here is a sense of true religion, if you will. It's an ethical response to God that has an a, a outbringing, a showing, if you will, in the world today. To love mercy is to freely and willingly show kindness to others, not just when it's convenient for you. But this means to go out of your way to help those around you. The expression to walk humbly with your God means to live in conscious fellowship with God, exercising a spirit of humility before him. These great words recall a similar phrase from Jesus in Matthew 23 when his earthly ministry is here and he says this woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites if you were with us and lost and found for one week you heard the term Pharisees and they were the religious elites they believed they could earn their way to God he says hypocrites he calls them hypocrites you pay a tenth of mint dill and cumin and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. They believed they could earn God's favor by doing good works, but those good works were actually building a wall between their heart and God. Same with the Israelites in the book of Micah and the same with us today. I gave you that statement with the older brother that maybe it's time for you to lay down your tools. 
Maybe it's time for you to stop working so hard to be in right favor with God, and maybe it's time just to go be with the Father. It's time to stop doing. It's time to start being. And that leaves me with the last two application points and questions like I always like to give you. And the first one is this, is, um, sorry, excuse those. We must be held accountable for our actions. Oh, that word. Who in here likes that word accountable? I don't like to be held accountable. I just want to do what I want to do and not have people tell me it's wrong. Right? I didn't want someone to hold me accountable to throwing that brick at that guy. I don't want to be held accountable. He was being stupid. He deserved it. But we must be held accountable for our actions. Don't mistake this. God does not want to do this to us because he doesn't love you. On the contrary, God wants you to be held accountable to your actions because he does. I think we can all admit, despite how you actually feel about accountability, that it's good for you, right? When you're actually struggling with a sin or a problem in life, being held accountable is the only way to get it out, right? Get out to the open. There's this word we use in church called sanctification. Some of you are probably like, whoa, Josh, that's a big word, and that's not in my vocabulary. Sanctification is simply this. It's, uh, I'll give it to you in the most simplest sense. It is becoming more like Jesus every day. That's what accountability can do for you, is to become more like Jesus every day. And point number two is that God isn't after our ability. He's after our availability. He's not after what you can do. He's after who you are. Your relationship with God is not hinged to what you do. It's hinged on what Jesus has already done on the cross for you. I've said it many times, and I will say it over and over and over and over again. God, there's nothing for God. There's nothing you have done to make God love you less. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. He loves you the exact most he can right now. Walk away knowing that. Walk away knowing that you're not too bad and too broken for God to love you. You are loved the most you can as you sit right here today. And so two questions for you, and that is the first one is, what actions do I need to be held accountable for? What actions do I need to be held accountable for? We all have done something wrong. Everyone in the room has had a similar story to mine. Maybe you didn't actually throw a brick at somebody, but maybe you thought about it, or maybe you haven't gone that far, but you haven't loved that person well. We've all done something that we need to be held accountable for. Paul, the same one that just gave all the qualifications for it, says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done something and we all need accountability. Don't think that you sit here today not in need of accountability for what you've done. Why I really wanted to ask this question is because I know. I'm going to get personal. I know. I chose not to have accountability in high school. I chose not to have accountability through most of college, and it wrecked me. I kept it inside. I said, I don't want anybody to know about this. I, that's going to ruin my reputation. 
Nobody's going to like me if they know I struggle with this. No one's going to love me. But what I realized through that experience is that the only way you can truly break free from something is by letting it out, by getting accountability, getting into a community of like-minded peers who love Jesus and are striving after him every day. Get into that group. Find that group. Do whatever it takes to get into that relationship. Because when you finally break free, when you finally let it out in community, sanctification happens. Being more like Jesus happens. I'll give it, that's the plug for this Wednesday night. If you don't normally attend on Wednesday nights, you should. 6.30, doors open in that gym. 7 p.m., we come in here and we do worship, and then we go into like-minded peer groups called life groups. It's the DNA of our student ministry, and guys, it is where life change happens. It is where you get to finally be free of what you're struggling with and give it to people who can pray with you, who can walk alongside you, who can hold you accountable It's people that are going to be serious. They're not just going to give you the answer you want. They're going to give you the answer you need. And sometimes it's going to hurt. I know I hate constructive criticism. Do you all hate constructive criticism too? Like it seems like a little shot to my pride, right? Maybe today you need to go and do that and get in a life group and get serious. Maybe you're already in a life group and you just need to be serious about it. Stop joking off. Stop talking but actually start centering your mind on what Jesus has for you there. And that leads me to my last question, and that is, what sacrifices am I offering to God that he doesn't really want from me? We all make sacrifices to God we think please him. We all bring things like obedience and a good church attendance record in hopes that it will make him love us more. But in reality, maybe we need to sacrifice ourselves. Maybe it's time we sacrifice our own wants Maybe it's time we sacrifice our own desires and our own want needs. Maybe today it's time for you to sacrifice your pride. Maybe it's time for you to actually admit you need help. We're all prideful beings. I know I am. Maybe it's time that you bring your own pride to the altar and sacrifice it before God and admit it's time. I can't do this by myself, I need help. What sacrifice do you need to bring before God that can make you more like Jesus every day? I hope, I pray you come to Life Groups this Wednesday, and I pray you talk about that. I pray you bring your dirt, bring your shame, bring your mess, and just come before God and a like-minded group of peers. Just give it to him. You won't truly be free until you let others into your lives. Accountability. Don't forget, as we walk away from today, God doesn't care about your rituals. He cares about your heart. So let's get your heart right, right? Let's get your heart right. Only then will we stop giving our rituals to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, Lord. Thank you, God, that you are good to us, better than we deserve. God, thank you for the amazing ways that you love us, Lord, that even despite when we continue to do wrong, we continue to live our lives our own way, that God, you still pursue us and you still love us. That God, there's nothing we have ever done that can make you love us less. There's nothing we could ever do to make you love us more. But that God, you sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins.
despite who we were. So Lord God, I pray over this group of students, over everyone in this room, whoever may be struggling with anything talked about today, Lord God, I pray that you release them from their rituals. Help them to stop doing and to start being. God, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for all that you are, all that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you will faithfully continue to do as you have promised. God, it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Peace, students. You are loved. You are seen. You are valued. You are dismissed to main service. See you guys. Simpson danger, man, cause this thing is a monster. Proceed fight, cause sin it'll harm ya. So that's what I do till I hit a bell ray. Start number ride, that's an everyday thing. Position come the time to drop Sport clothes on, we can call it under armor. God given weapons so the enemy won't harm ya. Yes, I'm a snitch, or you can say informer. Call it what you wanna am just trying to warn ya. Keep it on the low, watch you may become a tabloid. Seeing can't avoid it, but we still trying to pay for it. And you will till you riot. Fight with everything, cause the law can beat you down. Rodney King. And you just trying to get it out. You don't see that nothing wrong. But when you get it out, you try to make it out. But with the Lord, ain't no such thing as secret. He know what you finna say way before you speak it. Know what you finna look at before you see it. Knows everything, so confess it, man. Seek it.